Morning, BCC. How are we all doing today? Are you okay? Yeah, you're keeping well? It's been great, so great to uh, meet quite a few new faces today, uh, some old faces that have not been around BCC for a long time, uh, even going back before the pandemic, and also brand new guests today as well. So just great to meet you. Please feel really, really welcome amongst us. And of course, just a great welcome and uh, warm welcome to all of you guys on our live streams as well, on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, I don't know where you're watching from, whether it's in the city or around the nation, but you are so welcome with us as well this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series called Beatitudes, Attitudes. Uh, and over this uh, last series of weeks, starting at the beginning of September, we've been working through each of the Beatitudes of Jesus, uh, which are statements that begin, blessed are... And then Jesus goes on to add something. And he opens this amazing sermon in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 with eight of these statements. And we've been looking at what each of those statements might mean. Um, so I just want to open with a little bit of a story, uh, like an illustration, as, you were, as it were. Um, back, in the, back in the day, a long, long time ago, when Chloe and I were dating together, um, I went to visit her parents. They live kind of on the south side of the Humber estuary. And uh, I went to visit her parents for the day, and uh, we had lunch. And uh, Chloe took me on a little bit of a kind of a date out to the Humber estuary, which is like lots and lots of mud flats. Uh, maybe that's not your idea of a great date. I don't know, but I kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. Uh, and we went out there in the car, and it was a bitterly cold winter day really freezing. It felt like the, the wind was coming straight from Siberia across and making me very, very cold. Um, and when we got to the kind of where the water was and the mudflats were, there wasn't kind of like a beach, but there was a bridge that we could go on. And we spent some time throwing boulders into this estuary mud. Uh, and for those of you who were kind of uh, growing up in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, there was a pudding called a blancmange. I don't know if you can still get blancmange, but it's very soft and gloopy. And you could, when you, th when you, you know, put your spoon in it, it would all be soft and mushy. This mud was just like blancmange. And we, had, uh, we spent a couple of hours lobbing things into this mud uh, and enjoying that. But you know what? Not just because of the cold would I not swim there. I wouldn't swim there because the visibility in the water was about half a meter. It was so bad. It was full of mud, full of silt. Uh, now, I want to take you forward a bit in time to this summer. And uh, one of the things that I've wanted to do as a dad with each of my boys as they've grown up is to have a kind of a few days away with them just after they finish their GCSEs. Uh, so I did it a few years ago with George. And then this summer, it was deferred from last year because of the pandemic, but my, myself and Simon, uh, sitting on the front row here, we had a chance to go and uh, go on a few days trip as dad and son. And the aim was to go and do some hiking in North Devon. Uh, and so we got down there, but it was incredibly hot. And we had four days there, and we were supposed to hike every single day, but we only ended up doing eight miles, which is a truly pathetic distance for four days, if you think about it. Uh, and we did all of them on the first day. And the reason for that was because it was very, very hot. We had a kind of hot spike, didn't we, in July? And that day was, those days were very hot, very uncomfortable. So we ended up going to the beach a fair bit. And uh, on one of the days, we went to a beach near a town called Coombe Martin, which is on the north coast of Devon. And, and uh, we went to this beach, which is only accessible by this steep zigzag um, kind of staircase and railings. Uh, it's a little bit like Britain's answer to Jurassic Park there. It's like really overgrown. It's wild. It's got sort of steep cliffs and so on and so on. And, you know, you're going down these steps and you have to stop and let people come past you because they're so narrow. And as we're going down we can see the surface of the water uh, in this cove. And it's beautiful. 
it's really clear. You can see the rocks under the surface. You can see patches of sand. And, and sure enough, when we get down there and get in the water and get our goggles on, when you put your head under the water, you can see a fair way. And you can see where your feet's disturbing the sand, and you can see little fish. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous water. Now that's on the west side of the country, whereas the Humber is on the east, and it's kind of like a different deal with the ocean on that side. And I just want to take you kind of perhaps in your minds maybe more, and this is certainly something I've never done, um, but explorers and uh, people who like to go diving in kind of strange sort of parts of the world, they've gone to the, the polar ice cap, so North Pole, South Pole, they've drilled holes in the ice, and they've let themselves through to dive in and have a look around. Now, the temperatures there are very, very low. You can only be in the water sort of 30, 40 minutes at a time because it's so cold. But what they found in this sub-ice flow water, sort of like going underneath ice packs and going right down inside, is the water below the ice is incredibly clear. It's like glass down there. Uh, The visibility is about 250 meters. You get into the sea and you kind of, you're not even sure you're in anything because it's so clean. And I want to give you those three illustrations as a means of introducing our beatitude today, uh, which is from Matthew 5, verse 8, which is, Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Now, if you imagine trying to see in estuary mud, that's going to be very difficult. And then if you're in more normal seawater, that's got some visibility. And then if you're below the ice, you've got incredible visibility because there's very little disturbance. There's, there's protection from the ice above. There's not, much going, you know, there's not much going on in the water, very little disturbance. And so there's very little contamination of that water. And what we're looking at today is the idea of purity. And purity from Matthew 5.8 is a Greek word, katharos, and it means unmixed. Nothing is mixed in it. It's solely itself. And what we're finding with this Beatitude series is that as Jesus teaches us on these different qualities, we're beginning to realize that actually he's telling us about himself. And he's asking us to take on board the qualities that he has within himself because he is a pure person, a very pure person. There is nothing mixed about Jesus at all. When we look at the idea of purity, we're saying that something is solely itself and there's nothing contaminating it. And very often we talk about, for instance, not just water, but we might talk about gold. Gold that is pure, that, that is, is basically being smelted and, and refined to be completely pure, has had all the impurities kind of boiled out of it or smelted out of it. And the dross has gone away and we're left with something very, very pure. And this reflects something of God's heart. There's something inside God's heart which is incredibly pure. It's incredibly whole. It's unmixed with other influences. And it, it, it's very, very pure. And I want to just talk you through some of that. If you just come with me on a bit of a, a quick journey through your Bible, you will know that at the beginning of the Bible, God, when God created the world back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, everything was good and pure and unblemished and whole and right and perfect. It was, it, was, it was a fantastic creation. There was nothing wrong with it. It was only when people came along and started making really bad choices and choosing uh, to give in to temptation that things started to go wrong and things started to become polluted. And so we start out at the beginning of the Bible with purity. 
And that, that's God's heart to bring purity and to set purity out as the starting point. Purity is often seen as a, as a picture of holiness. When, someone's pure, when we say that someone's pure on the inside, it means that they've got this wholeness to them. Uh, and and, and that's, that's where we're going with today's message. I want to talk to us about purity and how when we are pure, we can then see what God is doing because he is pure. I want us to kind of sort of take a step away from the silt that can sometimes fog our vision and that we can't see where God is at or what he's doing and to move to a more pure life. And what I'm hoping to try and do is equip you to do that a little bit today and understand how that might work. In the Old Testament, as we looked at a little bit last week with the holy place and the most holy place, God insisted that there was pure gold on the mercy seat. Pure gold was beaten out over that acacia wood on top of the mercy seat, um, and it had no impurities in it whatsoever. And in the instructions given for the tent of meeting, the oil and the frankincense were to be pure as well. And they were a a reflection, or they're a picture of of God's own purity. And then if we get into some of the the stories in the Old Testament and some of the prophets, um, Habakkuk 1, 13. Habakkuk is a a prophet we don't often talk about in church, but he, he says this in chapter 1, verse 13, that the Lord has pure eyes. The Lord has purity of sight. That's a great statement. Uh, you know, some of the minor prophets had some fantastic insights to bring. Um, in Psalm 12:6, it says that the Lord speaks pure words. Purity of speech, purity of sight from God himself. Um, when David kind of messed up and committed adultery with Bathsheba, he knew that he'd done the wrong thing, and it spoiled that relationship he had with God. And so when Nathan the prophet came to him and said, hey, buddy, you've done the wrong thing here, David took a step back and he said, I have sinned. And then we get into Psalm 51, which is like David's kind of uh, prayer of repentance and sorrow. And in there, in Psalm 51, verse 10, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Um, you know, when we've sinned and we've, we know we've messed up, we have to kind of get right with God and reclaim that relationship back. We have to reclaim the purity that allows us to see God in our lives. And I don't know if I'm maybe just speaking for myself, but I know what it feels like when I'm not in right relationship with God. Anyone here brave enough to kind of admit that? You know those those weeks or those days where you're just kind of not quite right with him? And David gets it right. He says, "This this is not right. I want this to be corrected. I'm really sorry for the things that I've done wrong. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And, and also, the renew a steadfast spirit thing is a good thing, because sometimes when we sin, we feel pretty wobbly around a holy God. We don't feel like we're able to step into his presence. It's like, oh, hold on a minute, I, I know just how far short of your glory I'm falling right now. And then we get into uh, the New Testament, and we have this amazing episode where Jesus goes up a mountain with James and Peter and John, and there's this thing called the transfiguration that happens. Uh, and in fact, I think I preached on this back in the summer, and I went up onto uh, Warley Hills, I think it was, with my reflective jacket and tried to show me as transfigured in my reflective jacket. But the idea is that Jesus' light is so pure and so bright that it's dazzling. There's no impurity in it at all. Luke describes it as like lightning, and Mark describes it as like the whitest wash that you could ever get, but even more so, way, more, way better than Daz or any of these uh, soaps that try and promise to wash your shirts really white. 
Jesus' dazzling purity comes across so clearly that it, it actually scares the disciples because he himself is so pure. And if we forward wine fast to the end of the Bible, so like you've got Genesis purity, at the end in Revelation, there's a picture of the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and it's like pure gold. It's, it's, it's got a purity to it. It's like looking at glass. And so purity, what I want to say to us this morning is that purity runs like this deep thread through the whole of Scripture, and it's embedded in who Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Lord God is. Purity is actually kind of welded into who they are at a very deep place. Now, impurity in ourselves then means that we can't step forward into that relationship that we'd like, and that can sometimes happen individually. And it can sometimes happen on a national level. Uh, And we know lots of the stories from the Old Testament where the impurity of the people led them to fall away from that connection with God. Um, You know, the psalmist, in another place in the Psalms, in Psalm 24, uh, he describes, uh, he asks this question, this very challenging question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I'd put it to you this morning that clean hands and a pure heart represent holiness on the inside and holiness on the outside. These are challenging words, aren't they, church? Anyone feeling a little bit uncomfortable? Because I am. I I don't want to get in front of a holy God that's pure and clean with my sin and my dross and all the things that have been going on in my head. I need cleaning up. And that's what the story of the Bible is about. In the Old Testament, there would be the sacrifice of a, of a spotless lamb, and the blood would be sprinkled on the altar and the tent of meeting, you know, on, on the mercy seat. We looked at that last week. And that was the way in which the people got pure with God. There was a sacrifice paid, uh, sorry, made uh, to get that purity returned, to reclaim that purity. And in the New Testament, we have the same thing going on with Jesus. Jesus has his blood shed on the cross for us, and that process makes us pure on the inside. There is nothing else that will make you pure or right with God in the same way. Only the blood of Jesus will do that upon you. And so when you, when you make that decision to follow Jesus, when you decide to follow after him in your heart, and you say, yeah, Jesus, you are Lord, you receive that off the cross into your spirit, and you are made pure on the inside. You are made absolutely pure on the inside. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, uh, describes this really, really well. Hebrews 10.22 says this, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so that's referring to the blood of Jesus washing our, our, our spirit, But it's also referring to baptism, which cleans us up and makes us right on the inside. For those of us in the room who've been baptized, just cast your mind back to that day when you got baptized. I don't know about you, but when I got baptized, I felt so clean on the inside. It was wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. Perhaps if you've not yet been baptized, this is a step you can next take. We're going to plan with the team, but I kind of am thinking November time, we'll do some more baptisms. The last set we did was in the car park at Family Festival, and they were great, weren't they? Get yourself baptized if you're not yet baptized and you are starting to follow Jesus. That's just an absolutely right next step to take. I think, however, having said all of these great things about Scripture and about Jesus, I think we need practical help. I actually think all of us struggle with the issue of purity on the inside in one way or another. 
Purity is hard to achieve. Um, it's hard to go for. It's, dif- it's difficult. We know when it's not there, but it's great when it is there. And so I want to give us like a kind of a practical toolkit for purity. And there are, three, there are three words in this practical toolkit. And like great preaching, all great preaching should have three words. And they all begin with the same letter. Amen? Yeah? Uh, so th- this, uh, this toolkit um, is three words beginning with the letter C. And the first word is combat. The second word is confess. And the third word is clarify. Combat, confess, clarify. So what do I mean by those three things? So, so combat is combat against temptation. We need to take a battle to temptation and we need to win because if we use the analogy of the river, that prevents us from putting more mud in the river. If we can win the battle on the bank, as it were, and not make the, the, the water dirty at all by, by guarding our actions, that channel with God stays pure, doesn't it? Amen? You're getting the analogy, yeah? So we're not making that that water dirty at all by our own self-control. And that's called the battle against temptation, and we'll unpack that in just a minute. Combat temptation is the first one. The second one is confess sin. If we have managed to mess up in our day, we have to kind of say sorry to Jesus. We have to say sorry to our accountability group or to our friends. We have to confess, and confession means yeah, I'm, I'm saying that I've done the wrong thing, God. Would you please clean me up again because I've messed up? Now, that's the equivalent. If we go back to the river analogy again, that's the equivalent of pulling the mud out of the river. Except when we do that, we kind of always leave the water a bit dirty, don't we? But Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus cleans us up, we are left pristine and pure again. His blood is fully sufficient to clean us up 100%. You with me still, church? Yeah, combat temptation, confess sins, and clarify themes. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean for when there's perpetual patterns where we've done a lot of confessing, but we keep messing up. And there seems like there's a, a strength there to this pattern, and we can't shake it off. And I'll, I'll come to that in just a bit. Let's look at the first one, combat temptation. You know, temptation comes at so many times and in so many forms, doesn't it? Uh, so on Friday, uh, myself and uh, my wife Chloe, we were going to Grand Central for a little bit of lunch, just a bit of a day out, and um, we're coming out of the lunch area, and you know that kind of upper mezzanine floor area, you've got all the passengers down there, and then this upper bit, which has got all those kind of nice shops, and we're walking past the place that has got the most heavenly cakes in the world. They're behind a kind of a glass counter, and the cake slices are huge. In fact, they're like actual whole cakes in terms of volume and quantity. The icing is thick, it's amazing colours, it looks gorgeous. And of course you're walking past there at 4.30 in the afternoon, which is the perfect time for a a big slice of cake and a cup of tea. Am I wrong? I'm not. And so there's this temptation going on. Oh my goodness, I would love that. Temptation comes along at all different points. You might be uh, late up at night one night catching up on your accounts and you're filling in your tax return and you just have that little idea in your mind of toying with the idea of, I'm just not going to declare that little piece of income. Why should I do that? I'll keep that. That means I don't have to quite pay quite so much tax. You toy with it. That's temptation. Uh, or you might be going on business uh, and your company puts you in a hotel and you discover on the TV in the hotel, oh my goodness, the, the, the channels leave a lot to be desired. But in the back of your mind, you're toying with having a little watch, having a little surf through some of those channels. And it's tempting. Um, you might be uh, connected to somebody on social media that you know is not a great influence in your life, 
and they're kind of asking you stuff and wanting to connect up, and you know that that's a bad path for you as a person. They're not a bad person necessarily, but the influence between you and them, you've tried to make this work in the past, and it's always gone wrong. Um, there's a, a wonderful phrase. It's like uh, I heard this on Twitter the other day. It's like, uh, you know, it's like wrestling with a pig. You know, you're, you're going to get dirty, and the pig enjoyed it. You know, it's like one of those. And it's one of those relationships. And you just think, no, I can't do that again. I got into such trouble with that last time. I need to give it some distance. But you toy with the idea. That's you battling temptation. Temptation is one of those things where we consider in our minds, what would this be like if I did it? And yet we know it would be a bad idea. Temptation is something that is universal to everybody. And in fact, Jesus struggled with temptation himself. I actually find that that's very helpful that Jesus was tempted. Because if Jesus wasn't tempted, I'd be like, well, that's kind of great for you, Jesus, but I'm really struggling here. But he was tempted. And so we look at his temptation, and he counters it with Scripture, and he's absolutely pure, and he beats off the devil in the desert, and, and, and actually the devil leaves him alone in the end. And that model is so encouraging, isn't it, for when we're fighting temptation ourselves. I want to share with you a, a verse that I think is just so helpful um, in dealing with temptation and give you some points out of it. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13 says this, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Great, great scripture for people who struggle with temptation. And it's got four points in it. And you might find these on your version notes or you might want to jot them down. Number one, be on guard. Be on your toes around the things that tempt you regularly. You know what they are. Get, get wise about yourself and be on your toes about that. Be on guard. Number two, you are never tempted uniquely. This might be a big shock to some of you today, but those temptations that you wrestle with are actually pretty universal, and loads of people have had them before. You're not the only person to be tempted by cake. There's loads and loads of people who've experienced the temptation that you are going through, and actually that gives us a, a solidarity with humanity, which says, okay, we have, a, we have a universal set of problems here, and actually we just talked about it. We could gain a brotherhood or a sisterhood to help us fight through this. Number three, the temptation is manageable. Actually, it is. I know that you, you sometimes in the thick of temptation feel like you can't manage it and it gets too much. No. Scripturally, your position is you can face off this temptation and win. That's what the position of the Bible teaches us, and we have to hang on to that sometimes. And fourthly, God always gives us a way out. I want to just share that way out with you now with a bit of a diagram and an explanation from the book of James. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15 says this, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. After desire... Uh, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it leads to death. So this picture up here, and I'm hoping that that will appear as a, an inset on the live stream for you, this shows the journey, if you like, of somebody's kind of journey in discipleship, which is that it's gradually climbing the mountain of the Lord in your life. You know, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, we, we want to as disciples. We want to get better and better and more and more on our toes about this issue of temptation. And so what happens is we have an evil desire and, and they come along. And you can see in that diagram, then the first evil desire and the third one, hey, they don't really touch us. We're not that fussed about those. They're not a big thing for us. 
They pop into our heads for a moment, and then they're gone. We deal with them. The middle one, oh boy, is that the one we really struggle with. That's our real core temptation that hits us every time. And we then start to dwell in what I'll call that blue arc there, or the purple arc. And what we've got to do as Christians is we've got to stop dwelling in that space for too long. We have to say, no, I'm going to deal with this when it's in that green little bit right in the corner. Can you see where it's pointed out with the blue arrow? Deal with the temptation here really early because that's where it's smallest. If you let this linger on in your mind longer and longer and longer, that arc gets bigger and bigger and bigger and suddenly you're nudging down into what? You're nudging into sin. Suddenly it becomes that you've done it. Catch it early. That's a great, great thing for Christians to understand. In the management of your mind before God, you get a temptation, deal with it early. Straight away, say no, absolutely not. We're not doing that today. And move on. Maybe divert yourself with something else, but catch it early, catch it quick. A great piece of help for you guys as Christians. So that's number one, combat temptation, because that's one of the most powerful ways that you can build purity before God and maintain that clear channel with him without silting it up yourself. The second one is confess sins. Confession of sins means that, yeah, you have messed up the channel. It is a bit muddy now, but you're going to do your best to clean that out, and Jesus is going to help you. And the way that you do that is you go to, uh, you go to Jesus, uh, and you say, Jesus, I'm really sorry. I've done the wrong thing. You just tell him that you're sorry. To take that to the next level, you tell a human being the same thing. Now, that's really hard. That's one of these rare things where it's actually a little bit easier to just kind of get in the closet with Jesus, isn't it? And say, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. And Jesus, you're so kind. And thank you so much, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Um, I'm really, really sorry. And we're on our day. That was kind of easy, wasn't it? Oh, boy, is it so much harder to go and say that to a person. And if you can build some kind of network of really close confidence, maybe three or four people you can get into in an accountability group, and you tell them your stuff... They should issue you with what I call the friendly challenge. Uh, 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 Many years ago, I did some training to be a governor in a school, and one of the things they said was that that you need to be able to do the friendly challenge, which is that you're basically supportive and warm and kind towards the establishment of that school, but every now and then you issue a challenge uh, in a good way, in a constructive way, and and your friends should be like that to you with your sin. Uh, And so what you do is you go along and say, hey, I messed up, I've gossiped again today. And they say, well, you know, there's no condemnation for for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. But don't do that again. Come on. You you did that last month. Now let's move on from this. So there's a friendliness, but there's a challenge. And and that that circle of people, I'd say probably three or four, not more than that, are going to tell you from time to time in that way to lift your game. So yes, you can tell Jesus, uh, but you need to tell a person. Can I just say to you that the process of confessing sin is a bit like dredging the river. It's mucky and it's smelly and all that stuff's going to come out on the bank and there's going to be a rusty old bike in there as well. It's horrible. But it's necessary if we're going to keep that channel with God clear. Because what we're talking about today is personal purity and this is where we do our stuff. Yes, Jesus has done the most amazing stuff himself, but we need to respond with some practical action. Third thing, and I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come back up and join me and just begin to start playing, guys, when you're ready. The third thing is clarification of themes. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is you've done your combating temptation, you've done your confessing of sins, but what you're finding in, over the big picture of your life is that there's a, there's a consistent pattern around that. 
There's a consistent pattern around putting down drinking and then taking it up again. There's a consistent pattern around pausing outside the door of a betting shop. There's a consistent pattern of that you are just a little bit too aggressive sometimes and it comes out. And you've taken it to the Lord over and over and over again and you've confessed over and over and over again. That's what I mean by clarifying themes. Now let's take this analogy of the river a little bit further. This is where, you, with temptation, you're trying to stop putting mud in the river yourself. Uh, with confession, you're trying to clean the river up with Jesus' help. With clarifying themes, you're going back upstream and you're saying, why is it that there's so much silt still coming down? And you're dealing with the root issue. You're going to the source of the mud. Now, that can be quite a hard and a deep process. That can be quite difficult. Now, a, a course that can really help with those kinds of things is a course called Freedom in Christ. And we are going to run that starting in kind of mid to late January in the new year. And if you want to be part of that course, we're going to line that up. I know that sounds like a long way away, but do you know what? Christmas is going to be here in a flash, and, and we'll, be, we'll be doing it before you even know it. So we're going to run this course. Uh, do sign up at admin at bcc.life if you're interested in getting behind a little bit to get to some of the themes of your life where you've got persistent sin issues. Persistent sin issues often come from places that are called strongholds. A stronghold is something that's, that's a set of thoughts that has power and strength that is opposed to God. And you know that it's opposed to God, but for some reason, try as you might, you can't seem to get rid of it. That's what I mean by clarifying themes. I want to just uh, share a story with you by, by way of illustration of what I mean by clarifying themes. A long time ago, as a pastor in a, two churches before I came to BCC, in fact, uh, there was a gent that uh, we kind of came into connection with, and I, I just had an uneasy feeling about this person when I met them. And it turned out that they were a notorious liar. They could not tell the truth. They couldn't help themselves but make up a big story to gain some kind of amazed interest from a circle of friends. Um, and this person had a, a, a kind of a habit of telling stories around uh, kind of the music industry and, and dropping names of, you know, like people like Robbie Williams and Cliff, Cliff Richard and Queen and, you know, all these different musicians and how he'd done work with them. You know, he'd done composition with them, or he'd done keyboard work with them, or he'd done sound mixing with them. And it, and it was like, at first, you just believe people, don't you? You just go, well, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. And then one day, the penny started to drop when he claimed that he was on stage when Queen played live at Band-Aid in 1985, which I guess is going to be quite a way back for some of you. Uh, but I was in lower sixth when that happened. And that was a massive day when that went off. And, and I, I watched Queen, you know, on the TV. I wasn't there in Wembley Stadium, but I watched them. And I was pretty sure there was only four musicians. And this guy was saying he was on stage. And so I said to him, like, uh, you know, like, what were you playing? I was, I was like round the back playing keyboards, you know. No, you weren't. That's not true. And I, I started to clock it. And then we got invited around for a barbecue. And I realized he had no memorabilia on the walls or anywhere. No photographs with any of these famous people. Nothing that would indicate that actually what he was saying was true. This was a man who had a problem and, an, and a long-standing problem of not being able to tell the truth. And here was a person who needed to go back upstream and identify what was the cause of that really deep-rooted habit to lie. And I think it'll be something around the line. I, I didn't, we didn't get into this. We parted company. He did not allow us to disciple him. In fact, it went very messy. Um, but it, it, we, we went, when we, 
if we'd have got the chance to take him back upstream and look at what was going on there, I'm sure it would have been something around the, the idea of, you know, I'm getting a, a great deal of attention for this fantastic story. This makes me feel good right now. I'm suddenly the center of a, of a great piece of news, and I, I'm, you know, and that gives me a rush. And then before you know it, that's become a habit, and then that becomes a lifestyle, and you, you, you're continually lying more and more to feed that lifestyle. That's what I mean by clarifying a theme. 